are told, here's the 10 steps you need to take to effectively ride a bike. And then you're given a test where you can, you know, answer multiple choice questions about how effectively you do it. An active learning experience would be, all right, here's the first step. Now hop on the bike, we're going to try it. And we have people beside you to make sure that we'll catch you if you fall. Okay, how did that go? Okay, you got balance down. Now let's try pedaling. So here's how pedaling works. And it's this much more, you know, practice, feedback, coaching application. And it's the way a lot of times that if, if you were actually to teach someone one-on-one, -on -one, you're probably going to teach them in a pretty active way. I mean, there's, there's good precedent for this, that one-on-one -on -one tutoring is kind of the gold standard of education in a lot of ways. But then the challenge is, how do we scale that up? If, if you're doing a 1 to 400 learning experience or a 1 to 100,000, what is necessary? Welcome to the Jess Larson Show, where I interview innovators and leaders. Today on the show, I've got Andrew Powell, CEO of Learn to Win. Andrew, thanks for doing this. My pleasure. So give people the quick overview on what the company does. So Learn to Win is an agile learning platform. Um, what we do is essentially work with teams where results matter to drive better performance through active, personalized learning. And uh, we started out in sports, working with college and professional sports teams to improve playbooks, game plans, scouting reports. But since then, have moved into working with the Department of Defense. They're actually our largest customer, um, working with Air Force and Navy units to improve how they do training. And uh, most recently, in the past year, we've moved into corporate training in a variety of different sectors across healthcare or manufacturing and have uh, a whole bunch of different use cases is there. But at, at its core, we're all about driving better performance through better learning. That's great. Well, I'm such a big fan of one of your Stanford professors, Steve Blank. You know, you've had him on the show a couple of times. And, and so I told him, you know, why don't we just do a whole series on, on innovation for defense? Can you talk a little bit about the couple of courses you were involved in with him? Yeah. So Steve is a fantastic mentor and actually an investor in Learn to Win, one of our first investors. And it's been incredible to work with him, both in the student professor relationship and then now as sort of the investor entrepreneur. But I, I've learned so much from him. I, I first took a course called Hacking for Defense, which essentially takes the proven lean startup principles that Steve has been teaching and been really the leader in for, for a long time and applies it to defense problems. So the setup of the course is DOD stakeholders, in our case, the commander of the uh, Air Combat Command's training support squadron, pitch a problem problem to students. They say, in our case, hey, we haven't really changed the way we train pilots in about 40 years. And that's causing a whole host of problems from throughput to cost to quality. And uh, let's spend 10 weeks trying to come up with some better prototype solutions. So so we took that first course. And that was where Learn to Win, we, we first applied the sports learning product to defense problems and found that there was a, a big fit there. The second course that I've been involved in with Steve is called Technology Innovation and Great Power Competition. And I think he and Joe Felter and Raj Shaw, who who are other folks that have been involved in, in national security for really their whole career felt that there are some big challenging problems that need to be solved if you know those who believe in America, freedom, democracy, a rules-based international order will kind of bring the talents of technology and innovation to bear in what we call great power competition, but essentially a future conflict that, you know, hopefully never uh, turns into a hot war between the U.S. and in particular China, but potentially other adversaries down the line. And so it, both of those courses have been hugely impactful on my burgeoning career as a young and as Steve in particular, one of, you know, the key mentors that I've, I've learned so much from. That's so great. You know, obviously, I'm a huge fan of Steve's and like people hear the resume, you know, sold his eighth startup for eight billion and right. these kind of things. These used to be impressive, but but I haven't had the chance to work with him like you. What, what are some of your favorite things from actually spending so much time with him? Well, one of the things he does incredibly well, I think part of what makes him a great teacher is he challenges people very directly. And I remember kind of week two or three in, in the first course, we presented a big slide presentation, 10 minutes in class that we thought we were quite proud of thinking that we had kind of the problem statement that we were on. 
And and his first comment was, I don't think that this is the problem. I think you're totally, you know, looking down the wrong path. You need to actually get out of the building, you know, go talk to more users and validate whether this is truly the problem that, that you need to solve. And just by being so kind of direct and constructive in his commentary, he pushes people, I think, beyond what they think they possibly can do. Like he holds very high standards. You know, one of the um, principles of the class is that you need to interview at least 100 different people through the course of 10 weeks. So 10 interviews per week, you know, 30 to 45 minutes per interview. It's a lot of time that students are spending just engaged in this customer discovery process. But by holding such a high standard and then offering very tangible, helpful feedback all along the way, I think the results speak for themselves in that his his courses and, and the student teams that he'd mentored have gone on to create hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars in value as well since, you know, his course has been one of the most successful entrepreneurship courses at Stanford. And Stanford is in, in many ways the most successful university in entrepreneurship. So so Steve is kind of the, the greatest of all time in a lot of regards, I think, in terms of finding scalable ways to develop more entrepreneurs who who can go out and tackle problems. Well, yeah, I think everybody should be getting their own copy of the startup owner's manual of his and, and reading steveblank.com. He's got so much good content there. For sure. Um, for sure. So let's talk about this. In your opinion, I'm a really opinionated guy. I know all my own opinions why I care about this. But in your opinion, why why is innovation for defense something that you are passionate enough to to have a company focus on it so heavily? For a few different reasons. I think one, I um believe that the vision that that America and her allies are pursuing and really have pursued ever since World War II is a fundamentally better vision for society and for the world than the leading competing alternatives. And and in no way is it perfect, but I I do I, I fundamentally believe that a rules-based international order is a better one than a kind of purely power vision of the world. And secondly, I think that, you know, freedom, democracy and capitalism as ideals are better than any other alternatives that could be put forward. In no way are those perfect, and, and America certainly has not been a perfect steward of those ideals. But when you really, when it really comes down to it, if you if you read, you know, the founding fathers and the political thought behind the U.S., and then compare that to something like Xi Jinping thought, I, I fundamentally want to live in the world that is articulated in the U.S. founding documents more than I would like to live in the world that is envisioned kind of the the leading Chinese Communist Party political thought. And so if if that's kind of established as a as a principle, Principle, then I think it's it's a, of a very great importance to ensure that the you know the freedom democracy capitalism side of things prevails if if they do come into direct conflict. So for people not as familiar, I mean maybe we mostly get our information off the news or whatever. Can you give us some specifics of when you think about thoughts of of in the you know the leaders of the whether it's the Chinese Communist Party or Russia, Iran, North Korea, any of these you know potential other folks that would like to run the world? Yeah, well I, I this is maybe where I should defer to some of the great professors or, or thinkers at, at Stanford. There's been some incredible folks who have done a lot of research on this. So Keith Hennessy at, at Stanford University actually teaches a course called Freedom, Democracy, and Capitalism. I believe that his syllabus is all posted online, but you can you can read directly kind of the political thought from Xi Jinping. And I, I think that there's... Yeah, can you just give some examples of that one? Then? Yeah, shoot. <laughs> just, just in general. I know I'm totally putting yeah. you on the spot. Just in right. general, give, give us yeah. some of your feelings about it, at least how you interpret it. Well, so I think that if, if you believe that things like censorship from the state is a, you know, a, a acceptable thing to do, you know, you could justify Xi's actions for, say, you know, economic growth by suppressing religious or uh, political minorities, whereas I would kind of 
flip that and say that there are notions of fundamental human rights that should not be violated and that those are articulated in, you know, a, a document or a order to to society that is not just dependent on a single kind of authoritarian leader. And so in the long run, I, I kind of think that those, those the principles of, of the U.S. are both more effective, and, but also more ethical. And so, you know, that would be one example of some of the political, you know, positions of, of Xi in particular that I think are are not a, aligned with a vision of a good society. Sure. So I'm interested through this process, you know, the lean startup, the the four steps of the epiphany, whatever you want to call it. Right. What were some of the key discoveries that you made as you built your company? Well, one of the early ones in our, our discovery was that a lot of organizations and their approach to teaching and learning suboptimal in a lot of ways. And I think that as we got out there talking to, in particular, military organizations, we found that there were you know, lots of problems that were created by the fact that organizations were, were largely stuck in a traditional kind of industrial model of teaching, which a lot of us are familiar from that in, in K-12. You sit, sit in a classroom, you watch someone lecture, maybe they draw stuff up on a whiteboard and then, you know, send you out to, to do whatever you're expected to do. And so in, in our kind of interviewing tons of folks within the Air Force in particular, we found that there were just tons of opportunities to, to improve the ways that things were done through bringing in more effective technologies for teaching, more easy to use systems of creating training and then measuring the effectiveness of it, and then applying some data and rigor to how well is this working? And, uh, you know, are we solving the problems through training that we believe that we are? And so there's a whole a whole suite of different things that coming out of that course really came from the user interviews directly that then began informing a lot of our product roadmap and have enabled us, I think, to solve some some real problems that have then led to the following contracts that we've won. And but it but it really all started with trying to understand the, the user pain and exactly what they're dealing with on a day to day basis to then, you know, turn that into a, a novel solution they're willing to pay for in, in the years since then. Yeah. You know, this is a fascinating subject to me, especially around, and I think it's one of the reasons that I have really made so many friends and stayed in contact with so many of the DOD folks that I used to consult who work for us or volunteer at our charity or things and, and have taken some on as business partners and things. Specifically around like the science of myelination, and, mm. like how experts become experts the fastest and right. you know, not all practice is created equal and sure. what's, you know, what's actually going to create these neural pathways that, that can, can move the electrical impulses faster in our brains, right? right? Right. Um, I'm interested, is is some of that part of, of how you approach things or what, what aspects of that did you guys look into? Yeah, well, I initially got really interested in education from some work I did in undergrad. I, I went to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and had this moment where I met a student who was uh, taking Econ 101 for the fifth time. And uh, she had failed it the prior four times and she was a, a first generation college student. And it was just heartbreaking to hear her story because, you know, while a lot of people would say she kept failing that class, I really felt that the class was failing her and that the university wasn't necessarily set up to ideally support students who were not necessarily able to just structure their entire learning experience for themselves to succeed in this somewhat, you know, challenging, you know, 400 person class environment. And so that sparked for me just a fascination with what sort of ways uh, can we design systems to make it such that everybody learns better, but in particular, the students who may be likely to struggle are supported and, and able to succeed. And so 
the the things that we've built brought into Learn to Win are really based on a lot of research that we started in a class saying, you know, we looked at in particular high structure active learning models and how those as opposed to a passive lecture experience. In one case, we're able to totally eliminate the achievement gap for first generation college students through redesigning the class in that way. So so the academic research behind it is is around active versus passive learning around how do you give just in time feedback that is targeted to concepts that a student's actually struggling with? How do you give ample opportunity for low stakes practice instead of it all just being high stakes exams and a handful of other principles that are pretty well established in the academic literature that you know work better than a lot of the methods that are traditionally done. And what we've done is try to bake all of that into a technology product such that you don't have to have you know a PhD in learning design to be able to deliver effective learning experiences, whether you're in a classroom or you're in a corporate setting or you're even a sports team or, or down range in a, a naval unit. So for those of us who don't read the academic papers, how do you define active learning? I mean, I get passive sitting in a chair, look at a blackboard, but yep. how do you guys define active or can you give us some examples? Sure. So active learning could be a whole variety of different strategies, but the key is that it's the learner is actually doing something in, beyond just listening or, or taking notes. So a, a really simple example is, you know, a passive learning experience for teaching you how to ride a bike. You sit, so you sit down and you are told, here's the 10 steps you need to take to effectively ride a bike. And then you're given a test where you can, you know, answer multiple choice questions about how effectively you do it. An active learning experience would be, all right, here's the first step. Now hop on the bike. We're going to try it. And we have people beside you to make sure that we'll catch you if you fall. Okay. How did that go? Okay. You got balance down. Now let's try pedaling. So here's how pedaling works. And it's this much more, you know, practice, feedback, coaching application. And it's the way a lot of times that if, if you were actually to teach someone one-on-one, -on -one, you're probably going to teach them in a pretty active way. And there's, there's good precedent for this, that one-on-one -on -one tutoring is kind of the gold standard of education in a lot of ways. But then the challenge is how do we scale that up? If, if you're doing a one to 400 learning experience or a one to 100,000, what is necessary to shift that from just being information delivery, which will be a component of kind of any learning experience because the, the actual knowledge of what you need to learn matters, but then shifting it to then think about what are the steps that a student needs to go through to master this, which often involves a whole lot of practice in a setting that's conducive for learning and developing skill. And that that's uh, kind of the, the broad yeah. uh, concept, but yeah. So like I'm thinking of an example, when I, when I was training Navy SEALs in Coronado, one of the officers, one of the officers was actually one of the first female officers to be commanding Navy SEALs. When she retired, I recruited her to come work for me. Okay. And it was like the best assistant ever because she, she helped me learn how to talk to three-star admirals and all this stuff. Right. Yeah. But I brought my like eight-year-old down and we got to go stay at the, the hotel on base down there, which is fun stuff. And, but we got to go over and fly in the simulator. She had previously flown a Seahawk helicopters for the Navy. Mm -hmm. And so we got to go, you know, you got to go check your phone in whatever, cause you can't bring stuff into those facilities. But then we got to go in those simulators. And like, I definitely see that from what you're talking about, about low stakes practice, right? Where you're not mm -hmm. potentially crashing a multi-million dollar machine, right? Right. But you just, you know, you'd brought up that the Navy was talking about, hey, you know, a lot of things in training pilots hadn't progressed. Without oversharing, are there any examples you can give us? Sure. Well, I think one aspect is just the technology that supports and enables all this. And I, I, for a whole variety of different reasons, the infrastructure from basic things like Wi-Fi and the computers that are being used to more complex things like how data is being analyzed and whether machine learning or uh, AI systems are, are applied, 
the my take is that the, the government is way behind where it needs to be, certainly way behind private sector in a lot of ways that create a whole bunch of problems. So one of the first and most obvious things we noticed in looking at the pilot training pipeline is tons of it is still done with a pen and paper, three ring bind. In some cases, you have a you know paper grade book where you're recording assessments. And so simply just bringing a digital infrastructure to all of that uh, is one area that was a, a major need for improvement. I think a second thing is there's, you know, training a pilot is complex and it is high risk. And so the system has brought in a whole bunch of checks all along the way that in many ways treat every student pilot the same way. It's kind of a one size fits all. But if you and I were both learning to fly and we did a training flight, there'd be things that you would mess up that you need feedback on and coaching on that are different from the things that I mess up and need feedback and coaching on. And yet we're all given kind of the same syllabus, the same curriculum, you know, one size fits all assessments. And so developing an infrastructure to, to personalize that in a way that enables us to have a different thing that's, you know, more tailored to our learning needs is is a second big area. And then I think a third one is is just the costs of um, flying are actually significantly increasing, whether it's fuel costs, it's, you know, aircraft maintenance, uh, there's things that just the training, the, the dollars connected to training activities like a uh, live flight are, are pretty extreme. And so can you develop like high fidelity, much cheaper systems, whether it's a full on simulator, or perhaps there's, you know, been some real interesting innovation happening with VR headsets, using that as, uh, you know, a, a much cheaper substitute to a full on simulator that can, you know, make the tools for learning much more accessible to the pilots. You know, it's interesting for other applications, you know, thinking about thinking about within military shooting, for instance, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we're at, at Child Rescue, we're doing these tactical fundraisers where civilians can come like learn some cool guy skills, right? And mm -hmm. the, the, the money we charge to the class actually pays a former intelligence officer to teach police how to recruit sources that are higher up the food chain within, wow. you know, some of these human trafficking rings and criminal organizations that are hurting kids, right? And so it, it's interesting, like the guy who's teaching our next one, 28 year Green Beret, and he is such a fan of Airsoft. And like you talk about low stakes shooting, right? You get yep. you get a you get a pistol that is the but the ammo is cheap. You can shoot it indoor. The the consequences are so low comparatively, and yet you can get all of the major motor movements that you're looking for, including the safety and the you know and all these kind of things. Mm -hmm. And it's funny to like something that had that had someone else brought that up to me, it would have been easy for me to discount of like you know well, really we're gonna we're gonna produce you, you know you're gonna try and train people using toys instead right. of exactly weapons. Right? Right. And yep. and he makes a really convincing argument for it. Right. And like, you know, yes, blue guns, you know, practice guns or or dry fire a weapon with dummy bullets, you know, plastic dummies or things are, are all beneficial. But that airsoft, it has just a little bit of recoil. It has there's some action to it. There's there's the feedback loop of did you hit the target or not? You know what I mean? And it's interesting, like, you know, from an efficiency standpoint, how many meaningful repetitions can be had when you're shooting plastic BBs instead of instead of bullets. Yeah, right. I love that example. And I think that the fact that uh, that person has so much credibility certainly is part of what leads you to, to believe them. A, a connected thought that I've observed is that in in training, a lot of times the outcomes of training are a little bit hard to pinpoint. It's like, you know, and I think part of the reason that we saw initial uptake in sports as our first arena is that the outcomes are very measurable in the sense of, you know, they play games in public and there's a winner and a loser and everyone knows the rules of the game. And if, if somebody makes, if somebody trains their team better and they're better equipped to perform, it'll show. And so in some of these places, like the, the willingness to innovate in unconventional or different 
different ways that, that might be cheaper and might be faster and might be more effective. I think part of why it's like we see a lot of innovation happening, say, in sports in ways that we don't see in a traditional classroom is at the end of the sports week, you play on national TV and everyone critiques, did your teaching and preparation work in a way that just doesn't happen in classrooms? And uh, so it, it may, maybe if there was a, a airsoft competition of sorts and you, you could compare the traditional approach versus, you know, these new, more innovative ones, I think that might lead to a bit more innovation. Yeah, well, I mean, in this case, you can shoot paper targets with your with your airsoft and, and measure results there, but then you can also go back to the range and see if it improved you yeah. know, Im- improved your live fire, right? If especially yeah. if you control and that's the only variable is we did you know, I did this much airsoft or this this many dry fire in between. You know, by the way, I'm gonna put a plug. Anybody who is interested in in our tactical fundraisers, go to childrescue.org. Uh, sorry, childrescueassociation.org. We're gonna be listing those soon up there and just check back in with us. You know, Andrew, we'd like to cut these episodes in half. Maybe maybe just before we do that for the end of the first part here, can you give us a, a story from sports? You know, like tell us about a client and tell us exactly what what your company's role was and what the result was? Absolutely. So one that I like to talk about is the Ole Miss football team. Their defense had one of the most dramatic turnarounds from one season to the next ever when they started using Learn to Win. And, and the defensive coordinator there, Chris Partridge, incredible partner, someone that we've worked with really closely. But essentially what they did using Learn to Win is create what we call an agile training system for their whole defense. So if you think about the idea of agile in software development is, you know, highly responsive and and basically identify the highest priority things we need to work on and then fill those as quickly as you can and then evaluate did the things that we did fill the gaps that we had. So he kind of rolled that out with his defense where instead of it being agile for software development, it's agile for player development. And they use Learn to Win to essentially assess everybody on a weekly, sometimes even daily basis of... And let, let's dive into that. Is that like literally like they're recording something in an app? What, what do you mean they use it? Yeah. So basically our learning experience is kind of similar to Duolingo but you can create content around whatever you want. So in this case, he created, here's the, you know, all of the different defensive formations we may need to run for our game against Alabama. And he's going to say, here's, this is called, and you're the safety, where do you need to line up on the field? If if I call this audible, how does that change what you need to do? And so created a testing bunch of- Testing right there in the app for the answer. Exactly. So test testing in the app, they would send out on a Monday morning, you know, before practice, here's the 10 plays that we're going to run today, have the, the players take it, a lot of them, you know, would miss questions, which would then highlight for him, okay, all of our starters are missing question number nine. Let's drill into that in practice and make sure that we actually get it. Or maybe if it's the day before the game and everybody's missing question number nine, they'll say, we're going to chuck that play entirely because we're clearly not ready to run this. And a really cool example came up where actually they had a totally new play that they were installed on the the offensive side of the ball. Basically, all of the, the you know, starting wide receivers missed what route they were supposed to run on this particular play. They then were able to coach them on that, realize that this was going to lead to a blown play if they didn't fix it, got it fixed before the game, called that play, it went for a touchdown. And it was this huge moment of like, had they not used the learn to win system, they wouldn't have even known that this was a pending, you know, <laughs> Uh, mistake that was going to happen. And not only were they able to fix it, but then it shifted to a competitive advantage. And I think that had been shown, you know, in particular defensive performance, they went from almost the worst in the league to one of the top uh, performing units over the course of a year of, you know, on a daily basis, constantly identifying the highest priority things to fix and taking a very data-driven approach to ensuring that their players knew everything they needed to know to perform. No, it's a great story. But it's, it's so great though, to be able to have a systematic way to spot the faults that would yep. be easy to make assumptions about. 
Ready? Sure. And to have them player by player mm-hmm. to have that level of, of analytics on what's going on on my team. Yeah. It's, it's uh, I'm immediately yeah, thinking of sales, like, you know, whether it's our investment salesman or whether it's, you know, our real estate team trying to get people to come book our, our tiny house adventure cabins or something. Right. Right. Like right. what, you know, what does my team know or not? Or like customer service staff, like we're trying to be, we're trying to have like 24 seven customer service, which means some of our, so we've got folks in right now, I've got folks in Philippines, uh, Argentina and Paris. And it's like, as we continue to have a more international team, like I, I like that for the idea of like my feedback loop of like t- knowledge testing and, but also scenario testing. Hey, mm-hmm. you know, I'm going to try and like, I'm going to try and be the only Airbnbs outside of the such and such ski hill that come with their own private snowboard park and rope tow. You know what I mean? Right. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm like, I, I, I don't drink, but I can tell you, I'm pretty sure there's going to be some snowboarders who are going to have a cold one out there. Right. right. So what do we do? <laughs> At 2 a.m. when the guest calls. <laughs> exactly. They're a little inebriated and they can't figure out how to get back into their cabin because the phone unlocks the electric door, but they can't find their phone. Now what? Yep. You know? That's a great example. Anyways. And we've, we've seen that actually. Uh, so sales has become our biggest corporate training segment. And I think that you're exactly right. That there's so many different scenarios that you want to have people know exactly what to do. You want to perform well. And it's very valuable to a sales leader to be able to identify the gaps before it results in a, you know, missed deal, missed opportunity. You know, we talk about you want to have the leading indicator of learning rather than the lagging indicator of missing quota. And by, by building that kind of infrastructure to be able to teach it, to assess it, to then correct it when you notice the gaps and do that all in a very rapid cycle because the platform's super easy and fast to use, it then enables you know, a sales team to, to start operating with the urgency and the effectiveness of, say, you know, the LA Rams, they're a customer preparing for the Super Bowl. They were so operationally efficient in identifying every possible little thing that might go wrong and preparing for it. But that same cadence of, you know, what we generally refer to as agile learning, we think benefits tons of other organizations as well. Just to clarify, were the Rams were using your service? Yeah. So the, the Rams customer and were, were using us and then actually the Pittsburgh Penguins as well. Uh, so we've had a couple couple championship winning programs that are our clients and UNC basketball is is one that nearly got the championship last year, but they they also have been a, a big customer ever since our early days. So oh, how fun is that? Listen, where is the best place for people online to find out more about the company and to connect with you personally? So they can go to www.learntowin.com, just all spelled out, no no numbers or anything in there. And uh, I'm on LinkedIn or on uh, Twitter. So if anyone wants to connect, I'm Andrew Powell. And I think if you search Andrew Powell, Learn to Win, I should be the, the one that comes up. Yeah. Maybe to end here, if there are entrepreneurs who are saying, yeah, you know what, I, I could see getting getting into innovation for defense, but it feels like daunting. Like, where do I start? And how do I even how do I even get into this? What kind of first steps would you recommend for people? Well, I'm happy to connect with anyone who's interested. I, I believe this is a really important thing and would love to see hundreds, thousands of other entrepreneurs that are solving tough national security problems. I also really recommend AFWorks as an organization. So the Air Force has an innovation group, AFWERX, and it, their aspiration is to kind of be the front door of defense innovation. I think it's a great first step to learn more about the space, the opportunities to get involved. And uh, so I highly recommend that as well as a resource. Great. And maybe to close with, uh, for people not familiar, can you talk about how profitable it can be to help defense and how this isn't a not doesn't need to be a nonprofit endeavor? Oh, totally. Well, I mean, 
the DOD spends, uh, you know, 700, 800 billion a year on all sorts of different contracts. So it's a huge market. My belief is it's a largely underserved market that has been, frankly, dominated by four or five of the exact same companies for decades. And those companies are, for a whole host of different reasons, not the most innovative and certainly are not leveraging the kind of leading edge modern technology. And so if you're someone who, you know, is solving a concept in a novel way and you're able to break through, it's a massive and largely unserved market that, oh, by the way, is an incredibly important mission that I think attracts really talented people to work on it. So I yeah, highly recommend it both from a mission as well as just a enterprise value maximization angle. Very cool. Well, thanks for doing this. Thanks, Jess. Everybody else tune back in. I've got a whole bunch more questions for Andrew in part two. Thanks so much.